right, you guys can be seated. Isaiah chapter 59 is where we will be today. We're in the home stretch, right? We're in Isaiah. It's a 66-chapter book. We started it in 1986, I think it was, or something like that. No. Okay, so 2019, and uh, it hit, we spent most of the year 2019 in it. Took a little break at the beginning of this year, and then dove back in on Good Friday. And so as we do that, we're working our way into the final section. Isaiah's got three big sections. It's the first 39 or so chapters where God is calling out his people. And just to, to summarize it in something we can understand today as the church, is that the people of God, as God is speaking to them, he's telling them, you look just like the world around you. That you, there's not much distinction between you and Egypt over here, or you and, and, and Syria over here. You look like the other nations, you worship like the other nations, you act and you speak like the other nations. And so as God calls his people to be distinct and to be different, to be marked as his own, his critique of them is that you don't look any different than the world. Modern day application, as we look at people, as we look at Christians, Christians seem to look mostly just like the world around them. They idolize politics like the world around them. They have the same sins as the world around them. They speak and talk and act like the world around us. And I don't say them, I mean us. And so God would be calling us today, listen, as the church, you who are called by Christ's name, Christians, that you should live and act and speak differently. Your heart should be given to different things. Your reaction to the world around you should be different because you're mine. When we come to faith, we are we're, the, the process of, we call it sanctification, but the, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus begins. And it never ends, no matter how long we live. Today, we got a special birthday. He probably didn't want to hear this, but Jim DeBee, 81, right? I said not 100, right? So 81. All right, so 81. And I'm waiting for the whole centennial thing. What I love about Jim is one of our elders here, who's uh, uh, not currently on the board, but a longtime elder, is at 81, Jim knows he is still changing. He is still transforming, right? He's been a Christian literally for longer than I've been alive. And so well, I'm 51, so I'm going to say you came to faith before 30, right? So uh, yeah, so he's been a Christian longer than I've been alive. Here's what we can both tell you. It never changes. It never stops. We, as becoming like Christ never ceases. We never arrive. We're never like, sweet, it's Tuesday, and I look just like Jesus, right? So, I mean, like, we never get to that point. Okay. So, as long as we're being transformed, God calls his people to be distinct. We should be distinct in our politics. And that doesn't mean you pick the right team, because both teams don't look like Jesus. It means we should be distinct in our reactions to the culture around us, whether that be coronavirus or racial injustice or whatever, that we should live differently and look differently. So here's kind of a main idea, a hard shift. Here's Isaiah talking today. So we're in the back half. I'm sorry, I didn't say that. So he calls the people out. And then God promises in the middle, right, 40 through 55, I think it is. He says, here's my solution. And he preaches Jesus to come. Now, Isaiah preaches Jesus from front to back. But for those section in the middle, he focuses on a redeemer to come, the servant of Israel, God's servant to come. 
And that's where he preaches his, his humanity. He preaches his life. He preaches his crucifixion and resurrection so clearly in Isaiah 52 and 53 that people afterwards said there was no way it was written before Jesus lived and died and was crucified. So clearly. And yet it's proven. It was written hundreds of years before that. So Isaiah 56 to 66, God says, now in light of all of that, in light of the gospel, I want to bring revival upon my people. Revival means God's presence, God's power, and God's direction. So as God says this, I want to bring this to my people. We're in that section about God saying, listen, I want to bring revival. And his message tends to be, I want to bring revival to my people, but my people keep getting in the way. And so here's a note for you today. Will you guys start that timer, please? Here's a note for you today. Hypocrisy in the church. I know that's what you all wanted to hear first thing. All right, hypocrisy in the church. God desires revival for his people, but tells Isaiah hypocrisy is preventing it. Everyone points fingers at everyone else and no sense of personal or corporate repentance. The church today struggles with the same sin as we're seeing in Isaiah. The church today struggles with, hey, it's your fault. Hey, it's your fault. Hey, it's their fault. Hey, it's the world around us when God is saying, no, 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 it's you. I want to bring revival through you. I need you to change. So that's where we are in the story. We're going to talk about hypocrisy. And again, 2,700 years ago, when the people are reading Isaiah's words written before they live, but just before they lived, they're reading it and they're hearing it, and we should hear the same thing as the church. So we'll use God's people in the church interchangeably today, knowing the church came 700 years later. So bear with me as we're God's people, and we need to hear this message to us today. Let's pray. Jesus, as we gather this morning, we gather because of you. We gather, we gather because of the promises made to Isaiah fulfilled in you means that we get to worship God that our lives impacted by you, our Redeemer, means that we're not just forgiven, but we're redeemed. Our old, useless lives, filthy rags, as one author puts it in Scripture, are now garments that are holy and set apart for you. Our lives are now given to you. So you take what was broken and you redeem it. You, you make it usable again. You, you fix, you repair, in fact, better you make it better than ever. And so Jesus, as your church today, we need to be a people that are redeemed and being redeemed, transformed and being transformed, reformed and reforming, as we always draw nearer to you. So Jesus, would you come? Would you speak? May I fade somewhere into the background? Would you come and speak to us online, in person, wherever we are, and help us to see this through the lens of our own hearts, not just everybody else. We love you, Jesus. You are our King and our Savior, our Lord and our God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. So if God is able to save, we might want to ask the question, well, then why isn't he? Or if it, why isn't God providing the revival he desires to bring? Let me give it to you this way. And I, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, think the church in Acts, 
right? Think, think about what God did through the people, through the church in the book of Acts. I mean, from massive expansion growth by the thousands, people, as we were just looking at in, in one study I'm doing, as, as people were selling property and land and, and just caring for anything anyone had in need. They were so about the other person, so about the community of faith that their own personal interests came second to the community. That God literally was raising the dead and, and preaching and, and doing miracles, amazing, amazing things. As the church moved from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and on to the ends of the earth. As that took place, why don't we see the same kind of thing? So if it's the same God, if God's arm is still the same and can save, if that's who God is, then the change must be us. So here's what he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, it cannot, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. And so this, it kind of pivots in the middle to let us know what we're going to be looking at today. And so I'll give you a note, just kind of an idea, that God is listening Isaiah tells us that God is able to intervene, but isn't. Why? Isaiah lets us know that it's because God is listening and doesn't like what he hears. What does God hear from us? You could insert today if you want. That is the same that the people, uh, as the people Isaiah is speaking to. When we speak, when we pray, when we confess, when we post on social media, when we vote, when we do this, when we do that, when we protest or when we remain silent, what are we saying? And, and, and what is it that we're saying that God wants to hear something different? Verse 2, but your iniquities. Now, I want you to hear this. Isaiah is going to shift. He's going to write like it's the people speaking, but it's the people speaking from God's perspective of them, right? So he's, sometimes he speaks on behalf of God. Sometimes Isaiah speaks on behalf of himself. This is a, like a hypothetical look at the people speaking. So imagine the people of God saying these words. Imagine us saying these words. Verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your sin and iniquity get between you and your God, he says. So what sins? And if we just look at the last few weeks, so just June 7th, 14th, 21st, 28th, this is where we are, right? So in the thir first three weeks of June, we've talked about the sin of not honoring the Sabbath that has been repeated over and over again. As the people of God drift away from God and God calls them back, he reminds them to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, that you should work six days a week and give one day to God. And again, that's not take a day off from work. That's devote a day to God, to enjoy God, enjoy family, enjoy the creation that God made, to do something that draws you near to God for a day, right? To draw near, to remember the Sabbath. And he continues to remind the people that they fail in that area. And then in Isaiah, he's telling the same thing. So the other one, another one is the sin of not including the weak and the vulnerable, from chapter 1 on forward, Isaiah reminds the people of God it is their responsibility to care for the weak, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the outsider. Modern-day church, we're not as good at that either. Caring for people who can't care for themselves. Caring for people who are marginalized, who are weak. We've talked about uh, foster care a lot lately, and we have some things forthcoming. We've got 
Uh, we've got a team that has been really working hard to put that together, that our church will take a step in a particular direction. Again, we said, here's a need. We know of a need. Isaiah chapter 1 reminded us that we're to care for the widow and orphan. In today's culture, that would be the single parent or the foster kid, probably. And so we began to take steps in that direction, but we're not just blindly going somewhere. Instead, we've been studying and listening and spending the last seven months just really approaching this wisely. And there's a team of people that are ready to kind of share with the church of where we sense God calling us. The sins of not pursuing justice and righteousness. In a world so divided around race and justice, and we hear the, the, the needs that there are a people group that are uniquely oppressed different than others. Even if there's a racial history that is true, even in the modern climate, that, when, that people are not speaking up for that, or they're divided on that. And as soon as you hear of something, people go to this camp, people go into this camp. That's not justice. Justice is seeking what is wrong and fixing it, not repeating talking points from commentators. That the sin of oppression still exists in the church. And then the sin of idolatry and looking like the world around us. Today, probably one of our greatest idolatries are political parties. You can't, I watched as somebody post a question the other day, a pastor posed a question about why this and the things that were said by other Christians were astounding about the opposing political party. Well, this one's for this and loves Satan, literally was one of the comments. You're like, really? Like, I've never seen Satan on the platform anywhere, right? There are a lot of things that look like Satan. Don't get me wrong, right? But legitimate saying things like this because we've idolized our political parties when neither one of them represent Jesus very well. So how are we doing in these categories? I mean, probably, I bet more than 90% of us make zero effort at a Sabbath, and I'd say probably 90 plus percent of us look just like the world around us, right? In one area or many areas. That we don't do much better than the people Isaiah is speaking to, if better at all. So verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Note that the stuff that we're talking about is only from the last three weeks of what Isaiah has brought up. He says, your hands are defiled with blood. So just as a reminder, here's where we've been. So there's no justice. So I'm going to go through these really quick. Terry, do you have them? So no justice. Isaiah 56 also and two other references. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. So no justice, no pursuit of justice in God's people. Next slide. No Sabbath. We just talked about that. Isaiah 56, 2 and 58, 13. Blessed is a man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it. Profane, by the way, means making it common. Profanity, like the word we get profanity for cussing, originally had to do with taking God's name in a profane way, which means using it in a common way, not a holy way. So remembering the Sabbath, not to profane it and make it a common day like any other day. And it keeps his hand from evil. Not protecting the unborn was Isaiah 57. You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys and under the clefts of the rocks. Next one. Oppression of others. Lots of references. Just in the last three weeks, there's one from a couple different chapters. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. 
Now, as God says these things, we look at ourselves, and if we're honest and we measure ourselves by this, we have to say we're not doing much better. Like that we're not addressing these issues. The church is not pronounced, uh, uh, more pronounced uh, um, observers of the Sabbath. That it's not like we know, oh, well, those guys are Christians. They don't do, they're spending today honoring God. Nobody says that about the church, right? And then people will make the case that, oh, we, our Sabbath rest is Christ and that's no longer around. Well, Jesus says, you do this and you do this. You should remember the Sabbath and also pursue the weightier matters, justice and mercy. So Jesus affirms, no, you should still be doing that, but you should also be doing justice and mercy. So it hasn't gone away, and yet the church isn't marked by this. Oppression isn't something that the church is trying to see our culture delivered from. In fact, our church is equally polarized. When in when another cop and, and, and a black man somehow have a, a story where the black man dies, it's not like the church has a different voice or a unified voice or a voice for justice. The church is equally polarized into two camps. And we look like just the rest of the world. Now, those are the, those are the symptoms. These are the things God is saying are going wrong. Like, here's what's happening. But now I want, I want you to hear what God is actually saying is going wrong. I want to read these two verses again, and I just want to show you from a different perspective. Verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation. So I want you to hear this. Listen to the pronouns. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Remember, this is the people speaking. God is saying, listen, this is what you sound like. Isaiah is saying, listen, these are your words. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your hands. It's your fingers. It's your lies. It's this. It's you that stands between us and God bringing revival just like the modern American church today. The problem is always them, it's never us. The problem is always the other political party, it's never us. The problem is always the unbelievers and not us. The problem is always, oh, that liberal church, oh, that conservative fundamentalist church, or oh, this or oh, that. And God is saying, listen, you keep blaming everyone else. We make a habit here at Generations of saying, this is for us, not for everyone else. We remind ourselves that these words are to us to assess ourselves, to measure ourselves, to take a ruthless inventory of who we are, not to measure the world by. See, the unsaved world out there doesn't need to figure out what to do with oppression or abortion. They need to figure out what to do with Jesus. The world needs Jesus. We need to figure out with acting and living like Jesus. We need to find ourselves in the place of justice in the place of idolatry, in the place of obedience like Sabbath, in the place where we defend unborn life and we defend oppressed lives and we defend racial groups and we actually see the distinction when one racial group is treated differently than others. And you can disagree with that, but the facts are on the side that black men are more likely to be oppressed than white guys, that they're more likely to be profiled than I am. And so disagree all you want, but the facts, the statistics remain. 
And when the church can't be another voice, when the church can't speak differently than the two political parties, then we've lost our presence in the culture. Just two chapters ago, it talked about the righteous are disappearing and no one notices. He says, amongst the people of God, the people who speak differently, the people who live differently and act differently, they're disappearing. And no one even notices that their voice is gone. And that should scare us. So a note for you if you're a note taker. You are the problem, not me. Now, that's not me saying that to you. That's what people say, right? That I would say, you're the problem, not me. That you would say, I'm the problem, not you. Or that we would say, the outsider is the problem. So the passage subtly tells us that the secret issue inside of most churches today, I said most, probably all, but let's just go with most. And often throughout history, we always want to make much of the sins of others in light of the sins that we have. Take any example. Take anything we ever talk about, and it's almost always something someone else struggles with and not us. Oh, we defend traditional marriage, and we say this, and we vote this way, and we do that, and good. The Bible calls us to that. But the church isn't invested in traditional marriage either, or the divorce rates wouldn't be greater in the church than they are outside the church. Because traditional marriage is not just one man, one woman, but it's for a lifetime. And we miss these things. And we point to the thing that has a low percentage of people that's outside of the church. And we miss the transformation that has to happen inside of the church. Verse 4, no one enters a suit justly. No one goes into law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Ignore that. All right, there we go. So I got my cat back. All right, so legal system today isn't like it's, 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 okay, we probably have the best legal system in the world. Fair? Is it still broken? Yeah. People are talking about cash bail right now, right? And the idea is that if you have money, you can get out. If you don't have money, you can't get out. But the elimination of cash bail has been a problem too, right? Now you got people that are for sure guilty of stuff, or at least accused of things, running around on the streets. So I don't know how we fix it, but the system is corrupted. And I don't have the answers for that. But the Bible calls it out. It was happening three millennia ago. It was happening two millennia ago. And it's happening today. That our legal system isn't just. And it's not like we're much different. Verse 5, he says, They hatch adder's eggs, like snakes' eggs. And they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, the viper is hatched. The idea behind snakes or adders and and spiders is to give you that feeling you have when you hear the word snakes and spiders, right? That's the feeling. It's you're wrapping yourself in wickedness and you're eating that very wickedness and it's killing you. You're wrapping yourself in the clothing of the culture and the clothing of the culture is sinful. And you're wrapping yourself in it and you're taking it all the way in and it's killing you, he says. As God says, listen, this is what's wrong. Verse 6, their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. You guys know the story in the Garden of Eden, right? As God creates and everything is good and he creates humanity and it's very good. And he commissions humanity to be fruitful and multiply and tend the earth. Care for what I've given you. Follow me, worship me, do what I've called you to do. And there's no way to be an obedient people without having a way to be disobedient, right? We all look at this and like, 
Okay, so he gave us hundreds and hundreds of trees that are all good to eat and then said, don't eat of this one. We're all like, why, God? Why not just take that one out, right? Because obedience requires the opportunity to be disobedient. Otherwise, we're not obedient. We just have no other choices. And so that's placed before us. And and as the landscape, as you look out and everything looks good, and there's this one thing that humanity falls into. But my point for this is, as soon as humanity does that, what does humanity do? Tries to cover themselves with leaves. Tries to cover their own shame. It's, It's humanity trying to cover their own sin by their own works. So here's another few. Our works. We as Christians... Even knowing that a foundational principle of the gospel is that we are sinful and incapable of fixing it, attempt to justify ourselves by our works of righteousness, heaping sin upon sin. Isaiah 30 says this, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. When we try and cover our own guilt and shame by doing something other Something other than repentance, we add sin to sin. When God says, I want you to pursue justice and righteousness, I want you to participate in the eradication of oppression, and we head over here and we're like, but we gave money to this really good candidate. God's like, yeah, not quite what I was asking for, right? Like, no, you need to come and confess, and you need to be, you need to be covered by Jesus. And Adam's like, no, really, I'm just going to kind of make my own thing and go my own way. And we do that time and time again. We try and handle our sin, our way, not the way God calls us to. So literally adding sin to sin upon sin upon sin. We literally are snowballing our way away from God, making the problem greater. Verse 7, remember the pronouns. Now we're at they, right? Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there's no justice in their paths. And they have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. This is one of those verses that if you're familiar with Romans chapter 3, there's that long section where Paul just lays out the sinfulness of humanity. Those that study theology talk about the total depravity of man here. In Romans 3, it's like 10 through 18, or second half of 10 through 18. And it quotes 27 passages out of the Old Testament, crams them together in about seven and a half verses. This is one of them. Just talk about no justice. There's no peace among them. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us. Now, did you notice the pivot point here? You, you're the problem, the people say. You, it's, it's the people out there, right? They're the problem until this verse. Until verse 9, therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, and we walk in gloom. Finally, the change is made as God calls them out. They start by saying, hey, look, it's you, it's your problem. It's them, it's the people outside of here, or it's the the liberal church down the street, or it's the fundamentalist, legalist church down the street. It's it's them, or it's culture, it's my neighbor, it's it's, it's the police, it's the black people, it's the the Asian people that stood around and didn't do anything, or whatever it is. It's everybody else, it's never us. And that's what they say. And God says, no, this is who you are. This is what's wrong. And you won't even own it. 
You need to own this, that the problem is ours. And so they begin to say, it's, justice is now far from us. God is now far from us. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, we get darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. So here's a note for you, recognizing God's distance. The church needs an honest scriptural assessment of our faith to admit there exists a great disparity between our calling and our doing. No wonder God acted differently in Acts than we see today. Compare what the church in Acts is doing, how they're living with how we are living. Compare that early church that had all things in common, that when someone had a need, people legitimately just sold their stuff to care for that need. They weren't arguing about is tithing 10% of the gross or the net. I mean, they were just, they were trying to care for everybody in every case. Even if it hurt them, no one went hungry. No one had needs that couldn't be cared for. They went and they lived a different life. So that God, and it says repeatedly, added to their number daily people that were being saved. And then we look around here and we're like, where is God now? Why doesn't God act this way? Whole theological streams have been built around why God doesn't act this way. Oh, well, God just did that to establish the early church. Really? Because he said he wanted to do it through us too. And Jesus said, and you'll do more than this, right? More than the things I've done. So where is it today? And as the distance, if there is a distance between us and God, if there is a distance between us and revival, we put it there. God didn't put it there. God is spending 11 chapters saying, this is what I want to do for you. I want to give this to you. You're the one stopping it. You're the one preventing revival. You're the one preventing my presence, my power, my guidance, and my witness through you. Verse 10, we grope for the wall like we're blind. We grope for those like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor like we're dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. That sound about like how we feel sometimes today? Like where is God in this? Like where is justice in this? I, I think this last season, and we talked about this, I guess it was the beginning of this month. This last season, finally, a lot of people got on the same page uh, at the death of George Floyd. Finally, everybody sat and watched, and I think we were a captive audience because of coronavirus, and we'd all watch way too much TV anyhow. And then we watched Ahmaud Aubrey get shot by two dudes who looked like rednecks jumping out of a pickup truck, right? And they were just like, okay, something's really, really wrong here. Like, why did that have to happen that way? And then we watched George Floyd, and I think America kind of, kind of, all got on the same page for a minute and was like, man, there's something wrong here. Like, this could have gone any other way. And we all asked questions like, well, what about the other three cops? Like, why didn't the other three cops do something or say something or, or whatever? And for once, it felt like everybody's kind of like, if you remember after 9-11, the day after the whole 9-12 movement, right? Everybody was on the same page for a minute. It doesn't take, back, doesn't take long until whatever it is, politicians, media, culture, sin, whatever it might be, to push us back into two camps again. 
And then these guys put on their red jerseys, and these guys put on their blue jerseys, and here we are back in the same spot. But the church was changed over this moment. The church is now asking different questions about what do we do next. The problem is the church doesn't hear sane answers yet. The church doesn't hear things that make sense. The church looks around and says, okay, that was wrong, but I don't think defunding the police is the solution. Because then, like, when I call 911, what happens, right? And so where are the answers? Well, the answers, and then everybody's like, well, then maybe we vote for this guy, or maybe we vote for this guy. And I don't think anybody's excited about either one right now, right? To be fair. But then there's our solution. And we're back to idolizing the politics. Our solution comes in the form of a vote, not in the form of prayer. Our solution comes in the form of a candidate, not in the form of a savior. We have problems. The church should be the one leading with the ideas of justice. The voice from the church helped eliminate slavery. The voice of the church, when it finally engaged in the civil rights movement, helped move the needle. Because of prominent people like Martin Luther King, the church decided to join and said, you know what? What I see on the news with Bull Connor and Martin Luther King, that one's wrong, not that one. And the church got on board. Where's the church today? And my answer typically is in two camps. The church is in two camps. Neither are going to fix the problem. Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt. That can be, by the way, take that on both sides, if you would, for a minute. Speaking oppression and revolt, take that in both camps. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Translate that, spewing out the talking points of the last person you heard on the news story. But listen to the solution. For our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following God. Like the problems in us, they finally get it. The problem is internal, not external. The problem's in my heart, not in my community. The problem is me when I'm supposed to be different, when I'm supposed to speak differently, when I'm not supposed to don a team jersey other than Jesus, when I'm supposed to provide something that actually provides a solution in Christ. And then I point to everybody else instead. That's what they're saying. And the church needs to begin with, a, with a, a sense of personal and corporate confession. So here's a note for you if you're a note taker. The movement back towards God always begins with confession. Read anything. We'll go through that in a second. Read anything where the people of God are returning, where they're coming out of slavery in Egypt. It starts with confession. When Nehemiah is rebuilding the city, it begins with confession. It begins with Nehemiah's confession, and then it begins with, then, and, and he does both personal and corporate confession. And then as he gathers everybody up and they have this massive worship service where they read from the law for hours, and I never want to hear you complain about how long the message is, read Nehemiah, hours, and he's reading Leviticus, that's varsity, right? And the people break out in confession and worship. We do more worship on the tail end of our message normally than we do on the front end, because as we look throughout scripture, people respond by worshiping. We do both. But there's a reason. Corporate confession always paves the way for transformation. 
corporate confession of sin. The movement back towards God always begins with confession. Unfortunately, we see confessing sin as something that we do privately in our homes. God is calling for corporate confession of his church here. God is calling us to gather together and pray and confess, hey man, things aren't right. Things are wrong. We're a part of the problem. In fact, maybe we are the problem. Maybe we're the only voice that should be speaking and we aren't. Or we're saying things that don't line up with Jesus. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled into the public squares and the uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. Remember, just think public squares, think social media or news media. And hear this, truth is stumbled into the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and displeased him and there was no justice. Again, for some, just for some takeaways for us, lacking truth. Here's a note for you. God says truth is lacking in the public squares. Probably best seen today in news and social media. Before we blame others, we have to see our complicity. We love the echo chamber of hearing what we already agree with. Let that settle in for a minute. We love the echo chamber of hearing the very things that agree with what we already believe. We hear an opposing opinion and we attack it. And we spout the talking points of the guy that we just heard who says things like, I like. And then we just say these things, and it's on both sides. Every narrative right now has two sides and two sets of talking points, and nobody breaks free because there's truth lacking in the public square. Verse 16, he saw that there was, no, there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. Remember the first verse? God's arm is not too short. It's not withholding salvation. He can bring salvation. Now God's arm is bringing salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. Here, Jesus enters into this story, and we say this a lot. It's, you can never just see a passage where God is just hammering the people of God, where he's just beating the sheep, if you will, without, without turning and saying, but listen, I've provided a way through. Never should we leave here just feeling beat down. We should leave here convicted all the time. But we should also leave here encouraged that God has already provided the solution in Christ. And so he pivots here, and he talks about how Jesus came and lived a sinless life and died our death, the death that we deserve, and rose from the grave to give us new life and is seated on his throne today. Jesus rules and reigns today, and he's poured out his spirit on us so we can be redeemed and transformed and renewed. Like the, it, it's like the ball's in our court. Jesus has done all the heavy lifting. All the hard work's been done. Now we just need to kind of take that, submit to that, surrender to that, and go the direction that Jesus is calling us. Now I don't want to make it sound super easy because the world has struggled with doing it for at least three, three millennia, right? But Jesus has done everything necessary for us. So our call to righteousness. Christians are called to put on the righteousness that Jesus provided through the gospel. We have that slide? Yeah, okay. Uh, righteousness is not inward piety, but outward action. We spent a day on that. Righteousness is not inward piety, inward holiness, my amount of prayer time, fasting, Bible reading, theological education, anything else. It's outward action. It's our call to action. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is not kept in the home. It's lived out in the community. Verse 8, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. 
So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream in which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion. Those who in Jacob turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. Redeemer, we become the redeemed. We're not just forgiven, we're made new, we're made usable, we're made perfect in Christ. To be the redeemed, Christians are to be the witness to others of our own transformation in Christ. When we are changed, we live differently, and people see Jesus. We are to be the redeemed. We're not to go out there and tell them how they can be redeemed until we are redeemed. When God will take us, think anything like, think uh, as you take these tin cans in and you redeem them for something, right? And then they get put through their process and crushed and smashed and whatever they do, heated up. And I don't even, I don't know, right? And then on the other side, they get to be used again, right? They're useful for something new. They're not just trash. They're now usable. That's us. To be redeemed means that we are brought to Jesus and we go through all that process. And then on the other side, we're not just trash. Now we're usable for the gospel. At once we were thrown away. And now, now we should be ready to go. People will see the redeemed and will want Jesus. Verse 21, we'll close with this. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, that my spirit is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth forevermore. We are called generations for a reason. We said this last week or the week before, because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, the birthday boy Jim DeBee and his family. We stand upon the people that started before us. They paved the way that we can come and we can take our turn and become our link in the chain. Then our job is to reach the next generation, be that millennials or the Gen Z, the next generation, so that God can bless our children and our children's children. If we will be the redeemed, God promises to bless us for generations to come. That's why we're called Generations Church. Because we don't want it to end with us. In fact, we want it to grow into the next generation. So a future promise. God promises his spirit now and forever. His word will not fail. We have the unwavering promise of eternity for all of us who seek Christ today. I would add to that. And we have a promise for our children and for our children's children. Let us be the change. Let us be the difference. Let us lay down the team jerseys and pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Let us be the righteous. Let us be the redeemed. And let that be the inheritance to our children. Let us not pass off the problems of today to another generation the way we inherited them. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You came and lived a life of pain and humility. You came and you entered into a broken humanity. And you didn't come in as a Roman Caesar. You came in as a poor Jewish peasant to a poor family of no notoriety. And yet you were God in human flesh. You had come to redeem your people who need redemption. We need to be taken from that throwaway thing to something that is beautiful and usable for your glory. We need to be justice. We need to think differently than the world around us. We need to be those who trust you. 
that you can accomplish all you need to through us in six days and that we can take a day and give it to you. That we need that day, but you deserve that day. We need the rest. We need the recharge. We need the spiritual refill. But you deserve it. Whether we need it or not, you deserve our focus and our attention. We need to be people that are righteous, that act differently, speak differently. We need to be people of truth and of peace as you restore your shalom to the world. Let us be the ones who do it. Let us be different. Hear our prayers. Hear our confessions, God. Let my whole message just be a confession for our church. We worry more about everybody else than we do about our own selves and our own sin. Forgive us. It's the sin in us that stops revival, not the sin in the world. We're not in charge of the church down the street or the Buddhist down the street or the atheist down the street. We're in charge of our own hearts being laid bare to you. Jesus, transform us. Hear our prayers. Forgive our sins. Heal our land, God. And let us be your witnesses for generations to come. Amen.